Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that considers all aspects of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories, including, despite what proponents are saying, one expert predicts that autonomous vehicles will not reduce crashes by 90%, it may be lucky to be 50%. We have a lovely chat to Jaguar in Australia about how the UK factory can restore your old E-Type, but boy, it is not cheap. We road test the little SUV from Holden, the tracks, and in our panel discussion with Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including a motoring internet site launches an advertising campaign on how thoroughly their testers look at vehicles. We ponder what an overdrive ad would look like. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au and you can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Proponents of autonomous vehicles often claim that they will reduce road accidents by 90%. But Alan Thomas from the automotive consultancy CAVT has thrown doubt on this figure. The 90% figure comes from a summary by the United States Department of Transport on critical reasons for crashes, which attributes 94% of critical crash reasons to the driver. The assumption then is that autonomous vehicles will not only be better than the driver, they will not make any mistakes at all. Some of his reasons include the largest human factor was errors of recognition. But can an autonomous vehicle recognize all the danger signs, including variable message or local signs, that have unique characteristics? Human error is the predominant factor, but in many cases a crash has resulted from multiple factors coming together. Part of the answer might be in an approach the Australian Road Research Board is pursuing, where critical infrastructure sends messages to the vehicle that clearly specifies things such as temporary speed limits. Station wagons have been through a considerable number of image changes, from the pucker-styled shooting brake, which was associated with aristocrats driving around the estate blasting away at defenceless animals, to the surfer's mobile home, the family vacationer, and the travelling sales rep's mobile office. In their last incarnations, the Australian-made Holden Commodore strived to be a sports wagon, The new overseas-built Commodore station wagon coming in 2018 will be less raw power and more adventure. Most notably, it will be all-wheel drive. Holden's marketing department has said that it is where bushwalk meets fashion week styling. Fairfax Media recently reported that the New South Wales state government has said that planning for a transport corridor in Sydney's southern suburbs should not consider public transport. Overdrive has been compiling comments about two corridor inquiries in Sydney in the early 80s to see if there is a better way to choose the right transport option. One well-respected transport planner who was involved in the inquiries said that it was a mess, a fiasco of political interference. A major problem, he felt, was that the then-government wrote the terms of reference which specifically excluded looking at all the options. One of our colleagues said, The inquiry stopped an outdated highway plan from being built, but stopped it so dead that good road planning was delayed too long. In a paper presented at the 1984 Australian Road Research Board conference, 
Overdrive's David Brown concluded that the inquiries had limited value because of oversimplification of the transportation tasks and the unusual perceptions which led to predominantly no-build recommendations. The latest Jaguar F-Type sports car has some wonderful design cues to the old E-Type. But there is another way to ensure that the classic E-Type maintains its presence in the culture of today and into the future. Get the factory to rebuild old ones with loving care. Jaguar Classic is a 130-strong team of engineers, graduates and apprentices at the Jaguar Land Rover Classic Works facility in Coventry, specialising in restorations and exclusive new original cars. They have just shown their first efforts with the E-Types at the Techno Classica Essen show in Germany. Prices for E-Type reborn restorations start from about $471,000. The Overdrive program has an extended interview with Jaguar Australia's James Scrimshaw on the features of this factory makeover scheme for your old car. A group of local councils in Sydney have bandied together to make a recommendation for improving transport down Parramatta Road, a main artery through their area they have proposed a guided electric vehicle scheme which has also been called a trackless tram. This promoted a wave of sometime passionate responses from transport professionals about whether you can call this service a tram or is it just a bus. There are undoubtedly some transport planners who feel that a public transport system has to have rails, either being a train or a tram, in order to be successful. Overdrive's David Brown spoke with transport planner Ken Welsh about what is necessary to make a public transport system successful. People often love fixed rail because it shows permanency, but you don't really need rail tracks to do that. You can do that with stations and and signposting and markings on the road. For heaven's sake, you could paint tracks on the road if you wanted to. Absolutely. I I think the big thing that gives the sense of permanency, which is a sense of commitment for the public, is getting platforms in. So having the centre running with physical platforms is as good as having tracks down. And that has been the news. As a wee young fella, I remember the E-Type Jaguar when it was still being sold right up to, I think, 1975. Of course, it has had a lasting impact on the world of style and fashion. The New York Museum of Modern Art acquired one in 1996. The press release in April 1996 said, Although the car was introduced more than 30 years ago and production ceased in 1974, the sleek, bullet-like shape of the Jaguar E-Type continues to be one of the most influential and imitated styling forms in sports car design. It was conceived by Jaguar to be the synthesis of a competition racer and an everyday use car. So how does a car company keep the image alive? Well, Ford owned Jaguar. They tried to revive the nostalgia for the classic Mark II when they released the S-Type in 1999. It was instantly recognised as a Jaguar, but only lasted 10 years, mainly because it felt a bit like a Ford. The last Jaguar F-Type sports car that we have tested with great delight have some wonderful cues from the E-Type. But there is another way to ensure that the classic 
E-Type maintains its presence in the culture of today and into the future. Get the factory to rebuild old ones with loving care. This is what Jaguar has done. Now, James Scrimshaw is the Manager of Product Public Affairs for Jaguar Land Rover Australia, and he joins us on the line now. Uh, James, thanks for your time. And Jaguar Classic, it, this is the first attempt where they're really uh, restoring Jaguar cars. They've done a few old Land Rovers. Now, this one's Jaguar? That's right. Yeah, thank you, David, for having me. Um, yeah, look, really exciting time. So just as you touched on, we've uh, just shown the first reborn Jaguar E-Type at the Techno Classica event over in Essen in Germany just over the last few days. So um, this is the, the first Jaguar we have shown, or first E-Type Jaguar this way. It's actually the, the third one we've has come out of this department. We also did an XKSS and a lightweight Jaguar uh, E-Type race car a little while ago. But this is the first batch of uh, Series 1 E-Types, and we're doing 10 of these, uh, and all expertly restored like no one else can. Un, unrivaled uh, restoration compared to what anyone else could do with these cars. Yeah, indeed. It's a pretty big team too, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and getting bigger. Um, they're, they're collecting a lot of cars and trying to buy cars from all over the world at the moment, trying, trying to buy source the right uh, early Jaguars, the right early Land Rovers. And, and believe it or not, some of the best vehicles in the world are coming from Australia that they're restoring. And California, um, it's just that you know our vehicles aren't rusted and didn't drive on salt roads. So it's uh, yeah, getting more and more popular, and um, Australia is one of the places they're sourcing these cars from. Uh, 130 team, a strong team of engineers, graduates, and apprentices. It's not bad, I guess. Do I get my car restored, or do you buy them, restore them, and then sell them again? Well, they're doing it in a couple of different ways. So they um, basically, whatever you would like as a customer, we will do for you. So if you would like the car that you've owned for the last 20 years restored and or part restored in a way, or updated, so it was more like Series 2 and had bigger brakes. All of those things we can do for you. It's all being done in the UK, so distance from Australia is a bit more of a problem than it is from the UK or Europe at the moment. We only have that workshop in the UK, but they at the moment will build you a brand new car, supply you a car, or restore your own vehicle. Or And a lot of people are just going to finding a car and then taking it in there and getting it restored by them. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely developing. I love it. It keeps them as part of the family, really, doesn't it? Because in the past, you tended to leave it to a range of individuals or private companies to do it. I guess what a Jaguar has is the original specifications <laughs> and all that key data needed to do it properly. Absolutely. We have all of the drawings. We have all of the part numbers. We have every dimension for every part that went in that car. We know the original suppliers and how many we ordered from them. We know what the materials were made from. A lot of people would be guessing that, but one of the the great things we have and why we can do this is we have all of the original drawings and all the original details from when we built those cars in the 40s, 50s and 60s. So it's uh, it's just a, a wonderful thing that we can do and a great idea. I guess it's not cheap. What might it cost? These ones are starting from two hundred and eighty five thousand pounds uh which which is a little bit more than a than an f type uh but these are, are quite unique vehicles and and very rare and and getting rarer as as the years get on so to a lot of people um that may be considered uh quite good value and what they really want for their car. 
but that's that's for a full, fully restored car that you're buying from us. If you took a vehicle in there, it would probably be a bit less, depends on what you need done to your car. James, it's uh, great to talk to you. I do appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure, David. Thank you very much. And that's James Scrimshaw, who's the Manager of Product Public Affairs for Jaguar Land Rover Australia, talking about the fact that you can now get the factory to do a total rebirth, as it were, a reborn restoration of your lovely Jaguar. You're listening to Overdrive. In 2013, Holden started selling a small SUV, the Trax, on the Australian market. This vehicle is sold as a Chevrolet in other parts of the world. In 2014, Holden added a 1.4-litre turbocharged engine to some models. Now, in the latest upgrade, that engine is now on all the automatic versions and the 1.8-litre normally aspirated four-cylinder is only available on the entry level, which has a manual gearbox. The 1.8 and the 1.4 turbo have the same power output, but the turbo gets it at lower revs and has more torque. Most of the sales will be the turbo motor, which has a six-speed automatic and with fuel consumption rated at 6.7 litres per 100 kilometres. The Trax range has been widened to include a mid-variant LT model. All models have rear park assist and rear view camera, cruise control and Apple CarPlay or Android auto phone projection technology. The middle range LT gets some more stuff including a sunroof, 18 inch wheels and digital radio. The top of the range adds features including leather seats, heated front seats, rain sensing wipers, side blind zone alert and rear cross traffic alert. We took the top of the range model for a drive. Well here we are in the Holden tracks. I'm actually going over some roughish sort of parking area. It's got some rather large bumps on it. It's not much point because it's not a four-wheel drive. Although I did find that when I got caught in a queue or trying to avoid a queue going into a petrol station, I rather easily went up and over the curb. So perhaps this type of vehicle, which tries to be an SUV, has its advantages as well. I like the dials. They're rather simple and they're set out. The only thing I don't like is that the petrol gauge, it's clear, but we've run down low and it hasn't stood out that I'm getting into the danger zone where I might run out of petrol. And talking to Alan Zervis, a motoring journalist. Alan, what did you think of the interior of the tracks? It's not bad, David, but uh, I don't think it's as good as some of the other stuff in Holden Stable. Exterior, it's not as quirky looking as, say, the new Toyota CHR, but it's not as bland quite as looking as, say, the Peugeot 2008. The uh, thing that we have to remember, I suppose, is that Trax has been around for, uh, what, uh, four or five years-ish now, and the uh, Toyota, of course, is brand new. So I think although it's the Toyota has very uh, polarising looks, I think the Trax looks very bland. Pricing of the Trax. It's, uh, Holden has some rather interesting pricing, particularly the deals they're doing at the moment. They do. The top model was introduced uh, a few years ago with the 1.4 engine. It's now going for a drive-away price under 30, just under $30,000. Um, and they've got the Captiva, which is a much bigger car, with seven seats going for 35600 uh, or thereabouts. It seems to me that Holden might be pricing within the segment rather than across the fleet. 
that if you were trying to compare a Holden with other brands, you might get uh, a feel for the why the price is right. But the Captiva has never been a great car, and they're selling it on price. So here they are selling it for not much more than the smaller model. The uh, lower model Captivas are actually much cheaper than the top model uh, tracks. Finally, the competitors. The Trax is running about sixth in the market in the latest month for the statistics. We've got Mazda CX-3 is number one, Nissan Qashqai is number two, and Mitsubishi ASX is number three. Holden Trax is number six, and interestingly, the Toyota CHR is only number eight. You think it needs a little bit of time to get a presence in the market? I do. The CHR, uh, I went to the launch of that uh, relatively recently, so it's only had a few months for the market to become aware of it. Toyota traditionally sells a, a lot of cars. Uh, it's it's you know number one in the country by a long shot. So I, my feeling is that in another three or four months, the CHR will have had time to get uh, some brand awareness in the marketplace and uh, its sales will increase. Now, whether or not that makes much of an inroad on the, the top three or four in this segment, I don't know. Alan, that's lovely. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. You're listening to Overdrive. And it's time to talk some quirky news. And joining me on the line is Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. We did just try to contact our colleague Brian Smith, who's in Jakarta at the moment, but planes and traffic and that don't make that possible. Nonetheless, Errol, you and I can talk a few subjects. I've been there myself recently, and uh, he's almost certainly stuck in traffic. Indeed. Carsguide.com.au. It's an online web-based service that uh, tells you all about cars and testing cars and other things they've actually started to run an advertising campaign and it's beyond the test drive it has one of their test drivers who goes into a dealership gets a car but doesn't just drive it around the block uh, and uh, tries a whole pile of things including loading up the back and so on and of course the point is that it's beyond the test drive it covers a wide range of issues which you might like to know about and which you might not get a chance to think about just if by going to a dealer. Errol, were you convinced by this ad? I can see that it would be funny to the average person, but it does seem to be based on the uh, naive assumption that motoring journalists take cars for test drives the same way a potential buyer does. Mm. In, in other words, that they only have the car for five or ten minutes and then have to some, and, but the journalist somehow then has to write a review of it. Mm. So, yes. I mean, we, we can get a good impression of a car in that time but it's it's when you drive it to work do the shopping drive up the coast etc that's how you actually know what a car is like to live with as opposed to simply drive well of course as soon as you get into a car your first impressions are totally dictated by the car you've just been driving yes and if it's you know a significantly different car well then that new car can feel either fantastically good or you know underpowered or whatever now the process we really do of course is we don't go to a dealer we pick it up in a large warehouse the person is not dressed in business attire they do not try to sell you anything I sit in it and set the mirrors and seat, and then I drive off and realise I should select a radio station. This can be difficult, especially if the previous person has set stations that I don't want to listen to, such as a range of wanker FM stations or shock jocks. I then decide to set the Bluetooth, and this can be difficult, so I'm starting to hate the car. The volume is then not high enough. I try for the knob, the screen button or the screen slide to turn it up, 
and it uh, doesn't uh, work easily. And on if it's on the screen, my pudgy fingers make it hard to work. I then want to make a phone call, and the controls on the steering wheel are the opposite of the last car. I announce what I want to do for the voice actuation. It doesn't understand me. It then goes through a long list of options, which I can't remember. At this stage, I'm beginning to loathe the car. And if I've just stepped out of a supercharged V8 into a reasonable family car, I can't get over how underpowered it is. That's my point, isn't it, Errol? If you, uh, it's the car you get out of. <laughs> yes, David. I then realise I've inadvertently kept the keys to the V8, so I turn around, turning on the windscreen wipers instead of the blinkers because they're on the other side. I get frustrated and I start driving back, testing the limits of the tyres, the brakes and the horn, seeing if the horn works. I spill my coffee, thus testing the stain resistance of the carpet, and then travelling along the car beeps at me and I've got no idea why. I stop and consult the manual. Now, this is not a relevant test because no one will ever do that, nor should they, because, Errol, you know, if you've looked at the manual, they're never going to answer what you're after. If, uh, it's certainly not going to be forthcoming. <laughs> yeah, too true, too true. Someone admires the cars as I'm driving and I get a smug look on my fake face. That is a very relevant test. Now, I, I should keep the car for a week, as you said, Errol, but if it's an automated manual gearbox, when I get back to the warehouse, I give it back. <laughs> so really the ideal or idealistic way that it's portrayed is perhaps not really as we would test it, is it, Errol? No, no, I think, I think you have to... Um get over the, um, the the first day or so of all of the things that annoy you about the car. Mm. And then you can actually start to appreciate the good things. <laughs> David, I, I love your line of, um, of, of your sorbet. Yes. Which is, of course, the, the small family car, uh, the one you actually own. Yes. That you get into as the, uh, as the, as the, the change from the, uh, the two brand new used car smell things you've just been, <laughs> been between. It cleanses the palate. Yes. It gets away all those past impressions. Yes, my car's getting that way too, unless I drive the newly released model of the same car that I've had for 10 years. Mm. <laughs> I think you've got to go back to it and drive it around so that you're judging every new car with, a, as I say, a fresh palette. It makes it clear as to what you're doing. It, it also indicates, of course, Errol, that these websites are getting very, very serious. One just sold for $35 million. Mm. It tends to indicate, because uh, these websites are, are free, so it tends to indicate that they're making so much revenue from advertising and things on their website that they're actually advertising their website. Yes, yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is indeed big business, but what goes on beforehand, I won't even begin to try and uh, relate the stories that may happen at a launch, which may involve a nice meal and, and an amount of alcohol, which perhaps not well before, just before we drive, but uh, perhaps the night before, as we get some largesse from the car companies. Brian was going to tell us a story, but uh, let's just touch on it. Driver technology will change how a vehicle looks, and uh, someone's been talking to the designers. Now, Volvo has a range of different things. Did you see some of those, Errol, and do you think they're appropriate? Well, most of them seem to basically involve getting the um, business class seat from a uh, modern airline and plonking it into a self-driving car. Hmm. That, that will give you a, a good picture of it, about it. 
The big difference here is that the car companies desperately want to get rid of the pedals and the steering wheel. And I heard from Ford the other day saying, you know, very easily, well, of course, the car of the future won't have steering wheels and that. If you get rid of that, you totally change the concept of the space inside the car. I've got to say, I don't think we're about to, to get to that stage at all for a whole pile of reasons. And I think we've got to be very careful that the car companies are not over-promising and what will ultimately be under-delivering. Mm, yeah, yeah, we're not we're not there yet. Well, not by a long way. And and there's a couple of things. Anyway, what the, what Volvo said, they'll have fold down screens to cover not only for the driver, like the little fold down uh, sunlight uh, protector thing. It will be over all the windows potentially, so that you can recline a seat flat and and have a sleep. Or the the car screen itself could well become like a picture theatre as you don't have to see out it. I guess then, Errol, you need surround sound and what was those vibrating sort of things that used to be or became a big part of movie theatres? The thump-thumping seats. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's almost like it's trying to hide the outside world. I mean, you, you might as well get in a car that doesn't have windows, the way they're talking about them. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's an optional extra. So you will be able to make use of a sunroof because you can actually lie down and look out. Whereas if you're sitting in the front seat, you've got to crane your neck if you want to do it. Mm. Yes, it's just you just have this vague sense of things, images going over your head otherwise. I, I, I think one of the ones I loved was the concept of a, of a vehicle interior that doubles as, as a gym. I just, I'm sure it will have a stationary cycle and a treadmill, yeah. because obviously <laughs> you would prefer to be stuck in traffic while you're also walking nowhere. And then, of course, when you get out at the other end, you won't be able to park too near your final destination, so you'll get on a movable footway. Yes. <laughs> One that moves you instead of you moving it. Yeah. We did uh, a story a, a few months ago about a, a bus, a service where there was a bus that was going to have an onboard gym. Hmm. It was a similar irony. Hmm. I wonder if, so, you know, you go for saunas, showers, toilet. Are these are the things that we might... Ultimately, given that if uh, these autonomous cars take off, then an inside toilet may be necessary because there'll be so much traffic on the road, you'll be there for hours. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I kind of like the idea of just, just rolling out of bed and then just getting in the car and you get ready for work during the trip. Hmm. RVs. Yeah, I mean, it's basically an RV with, a, with, a, with its own computer driver. We did a story in the news which totally contradicts this, that these designers are saying, without any qualifications, driverless technology will cut accidents by more than 90%. That is an assumption. That is a huge assumption. But mm. they go on and say, that means, quote, that means you don't have to build cars like tanks with crumple zones and bodyworks full of airbags. Apparently, Dale Harrow, the professor of vehicle design at London's Royal College of Art, uh, they were also the people, some of the graduates from there, that designed Daewoo's for a while. I say no more. <laughs> Errol, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, we'll catch you up next week. No worries, David. See you later. This has been Overdrive. 
My thanks to Errol Smith, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.